Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to another episode. And uh, Cody, before we get started today with with what we want to talk about, I did something I regret already. I used Twitter.com. Oh, Have you ever no. used this app before? Are we finally doing my episode idea where we just go through trending topics and just extemporaneously speak on each of them? Is that what today is? I don't have I don't have the heart to do that. I just wanted to start with one one topic that we've talked about before. I made a 29-minute document documentary last summer on the evolution of officiating and some things have been addressed a little bit this year. I think in general some of the foul hunting for the players wasn't quite at a fever pitch that it was at last season, but as the season has progressed we have seen an uptick in, I think, the frequency of shooting fouls called in situations that just never would have been shooting fouls in the entire history of this sport at every level. And there's one thing in particular I want to talk about, which is the rip-through before we get started. But I don't know how you feel about this. For my money, I think I would like to see a little bit more perimeter contact allowed because the advances in offense are so great that not letting defenders slide and work their butt off and move their feet and stay in front of the ball. Uh, it just seems to be imbalanced. It just see how, like, how do you defend if you're not allowed to have any sort of like incidental contact as someone is literally trying to run by you toward the basket. And so for me, I would like a little more contact there. And then in terms of the points of emphasis that they used to clean up, I just think this thing, we should almost call it the Giannis rule, just in honor of you, Cody, this thing where like, if you're the offensive player and you smash into the defender with your shoulder, there was a play last night in the Warriors game against the Pelicans where Draymond Green got his feet tangled on Herb Jones's head and then kicked him in the head and then they almost got into a fight. And the play that precipitated that strange event was, I think it was called, was it called a, I don't even remember what it was called. The whole point is, it should have been a charge. I think it might have been correctly called a charge, quote-unquote correctly. Um, and the debate was, well, Herb was still moving. Herb wasn't perfectly in line. If you like drew a line between where Draymond was and the basket, Herb wasn't perfectly smack in the center of that line. And my thing is, that was never a requirement for an offensive foul ever in the history of the sport because if an offensive player's shoulder is hitting you between your shoulders and the center of your chest, why would that be a defensive foul? Please, just, I just want someone to explain that to me in, in, in small words. That's all I want. So let's, let's focus on the rip-through for a second because I find this really fascinating. Really quickly Googling some things to see what I can find. And For anyone that doesn't know, the rip-through is like when a player exists with like the defensive player has their hands anywhere that's <laughs> attached to their body. The offensive player like swings their arms into... Their the defending player's arms to draw a shooting foul or to draw a foul. I don't necessarily know if it's always called a shooting foul. Now it's not called a shooting foul, and it's like the, I, I feel like they're celebrating that they're like, "See, we've cleaned it up. It's not a shooting foul." Why? Keep going, Cody. So in 2011, there's a Grantland article titled "R.I.P. Rip Through Celebrating the NBA Rule Change," and this is apparently when they actually changed it from being a shooting foul. So in 2011, and what's funny is if you Google history of the rip through, I don't know if we have the same thing because Google shows us all kinds of different things. Who knows where it's going to take you on this journey? But the second thing that pops up is a 2022 article. So 11 years later, 
titled Mark Cuban on NBA Rule Change, He'd Change. I'd get rid of the rip-through. And then the byline is Mark Cuban wants to get rid of a player's move that has already outlawed in 2011. So I, I don't know. It seems like the NBA has been on top of it, but also it still happens quite a bit. It still happens all the time. Um, <laughs> I, I would love an explanation for why it's not an offensive foul. By the way, as an aside, as someone who does a lot of historical work and um, isn't a spring chicken anymore, you know, I'm considered a, a dinosaur um, now that I've been watching basketball for so long, I'm no longer a teenager. Like, I think there's a sense that when you talk about new changes in the league that you're like a grumpy old man yelling at clouds. I'm actually okay. I, I love all sorts of different eras of basketball. And I don't think for the most part, a lot of the rule changes necess necessarily harm the game. I think some of them have helped the game. Um, some of the traveling changes and the gather step. I don't know if I'm pro gather step, but I can acknowledge that it's opened up a world of moves that are incredible that we wouldn't have gotten before. So it's not that's not where I'm coming from when I inject my personal preference here. These are things like, I just would love someone to explain to me why on Monday you weren't allowed to punch someone in the face. And then on Tuesday, punching in the face was a was free throws. Like if I go out in the court and I hit you in the face, now I get free throws. That's all. I just want to understand why you're allowed to take your shoulder and run over someone. Or in the case of the rip through, when I was playing, if you did that, one, it probably would have been a scuffle if you were in a pickup game. It, it would have led to fisticuffs without a doubt. Because, um, A, it's such such a Bush League move. But, two, there's a violence to it that the offense is contributing. The offensive player is is literally taking his own arms, his own appendages, and violently hitting you as hard as he can in parts of your body. And I think the thinking now has become, Cody, that your arms don't really count. Like, you're not allowed to have your arms out. I've heard this argument for a long time. And so on Twitter, I retweeted this compilation that Devin in the lab put out about Chris Paul's rip-throughs, and he said he's had enough of Chris Paul's rip-throughs. And my only, my only tweet, I said, just please let defenders have arms. And you would be shocked at how many people in the comments were like, D defenders should not be allowed to, to crowd an offensive player's space with their arms. Uh, <laughs> I, is this where we're at? Do fans actually want players to play with their hands behind their back? I, I'm just apoplectic. Please talk me off the ledge and then we can, we can talk about backcourts. So let me ask, is this like, uh, do you think this is like the low point in terms of exploiting the rip-through? Because when I think of the rip-through, we've talked about this before, but like the Milwaukee Bucks guarding James Harden like 2018, where they literally keep their arms behind their backs, right? I don't see that happening quite as much anymore. So like the aesthetics of it, it seems like it might have been worse there. But is this because it's also coupled with like an extraordinary explosion in offensive rating where the Sacramento Kings on the season have an offensive rating of 120, where the offensive rating in the last month is 116.6. Like, is it is it that coupling that makes you concerned? Because to me, I don't see quite the the uh, wild exaggeration that we saw a few years ago even. No, no, I don't think it's at its peak. But that's also why it's so confusing to me. I don't know why it's still around. That That's... That's what I genuinely don't get. I feel like the league made this change to say, well, it'll only be a non-shooting foul. Why isn't it an offensive foul? I just, I, I just want someone to explain that. Why can you take your arms and just swing them at someone else's arms? It's, 
It's very strange. So in this, the other thing that came up in this thread was a lot of people were saying, well, Chris Paul's being hand-checked. The defender has his hand on Chris Paul, and Chris Paul is drawing attention to that. Like a genius, like a basketball genius. And we're only, the, the, the tweet was just about Chris Paul, but it applies to dozens and dozens of you know, sort of legends of the rip through. There are many of them. You know who you are out there. You rip throughers, you know who you are. But like, if the, if the defender has their hand on Chris Paul, then Chris Paul's doing the ref a solid by pointing out that he's being hand checked. And again, we can change rules from Monday to Tuesday. I just would like an explanation because Cody, that's not what hand checking is. Again, you are allowed to touch people in basketball. That's not hand checking. Hand checking explicitly talks about both in the rules, the video rule book, traditionally rerouting and moving players, rhythm, balance, all that kind of stuff, those technical officiating terms that they use. So the mere presence of someone's four or five little fingertips on your waist or something like that is not automatically a foul. You have to actually have a straight arm and be pushing them or blocking them from driving or something. So I don't know what's going on, man. Um, I don't know if you have any other thoughts on this. If you're listening out there, just send me a wellness package or something. <laughs> this, it's just It's just a lot to take in. I think the other thing, too, that makes it tough, and I think post players have talked about it, is the differences in the way that, like, this kind of physical contact is officiated between players on the perimeter and players in the post. Because you watch someone post up, they're arm barring them, they're pushing back on them. Like, they take so much more abuse, but out on the perimeter, if, you, if you're, if you like, in the space of the perimeter player, it's apparently illegal guarding. But in the post, oh my goodness, you can, like, make a fist and push them wherever you want. I'm not letting, no, I, I'm not letting those guys off either. I tweeted a play a couple years ago of Jaron Jackson Jr. defending the post. He put his arms up. The It might have been Embiid. Maybe it was Carl Anthony Towns. Some star in the post was posting him up, turned and shot into his arms, and it was free throws. And I literally asked, I was like, why can't Jaron have his arms there? And people were like, well, it's not vertical. What? Now you have to play basketball with your arms straight over your head if you're a defensive player? I, I feel like, again verticality being this thing at the basket where you're trying to allow these like crazy violent contests in the air that create the most exciting basketball. That's one set of rules for defending off the ball and verticality. But if I'm guarding the ball, Cody, why am I not allowed to have my arms out? I just, that's all I want. Just an explanation for that. I actually, I do have a point of clarification here because something that I, I do see called a lot, and I don't know if this is the sort of thing you're talking about. I, I remember when I was like doing a defensive dive into Mitchell Robinson earlier in this season. When he would defend players in the post, he would kind of like build a house over them, right? Like he's posting up, but instead of staying straight up, instead of doing the verticality thing, both of his arms are over them. So when the player would go up to shoot, that would be called a foul. That's, that You don't like that. It's nonsensical to me. It just makes no sense. If I'm six feet tall and Mitchell Robinson's seven feet tall and he drapes me with his arms and I can't shoot over him, you're telling me now I can get free throws because as long as I get my wrists or my forearms to whack into his arms that otherwise are blocking my shot, it's counterintuitive. Why is he not allowed to hold his arms over your head? So, okay, are, are you okay with players putting their hands wherever? Like, let's say a player had long enough <laughs> arms that they could just, like, reach around the player and create, like, an encircling around them. Could they just do that if they wanted? You mean if someone had, like, 11-foot arms? Yeah, and they're just, like, reaching and creating, And they don't like touch a, them. I don't see the... Pr what's the problem? They're not touching them. So then what would the offensive player be able to do? Do they have to, like, dribble underneath? Do they have to duck down and, like, escape? Yes, they would in that case. <laughs> yeah, why not? Okay. 
Okay. I don't know if I'm 100% on board with everything that you've said so far. Because, like, I, I even think about when, when I was post-defender in my days, you know, a classic 6'3 dude playing post because that's what you did in high school. I, I always felt like you had to be straight, straight up. Like, you couldn't be at any kind of an angle when somebody was shooting. What, I, what I'm what i more okay with is, you know, you see the rip through when you see players have their arms to the side more. That's when I'm like, all right, that's kind of gross. But I think when you're, like, draped over them, I, I don't know, man. Wait a second. What do you mean you weren't allowed to have your... We, we've already talked about this for 10 minutes longer than I thought we were going to talk about it, but now now I'm incensed. You're telling me when you were in high school, you weren't allowed to contest shots without keeping your arms straight up? Yeah, I had to be straight, straight okay, up. Okay, I, I just don't know how many times I have to explain this to people. This is not how basketball was played or taught forever for the history of the entire sport. Something happened where coaches were like, ah, you're going to get a foul. That's the thing. It didn't used to be a foul. Go watch any game from the 21st century. I mean, the 20th century. Go watch any game. You are allowed to move your arms at an angle to try to contest a shot. I don't know when this changed. Okay. <laughs> That's interesting. I, I, I think I think at this point we're going to need to let set up some tape. We need to look at some things back and forth, and we need to decide what we're talking about. Because I feel like this is one of those things where ultimately we probably agree, but I have some some images in mind where I'm like, this feels like an illegal guarding position. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Cody, who do you think has the best backcourt in the NBA? I could tell you who doesn't have the best backcourt, but I'm not going to because that would be mean. Um, There's a few teams. I don't know, Ben. When it comes to ranking like the best backcourts, there's a few different ways I was trying to do it. Like I was trying to like tackle even the question, like what would it mean to be the best backcourt player? And I'm like, listen, tell me if this this isn't. Let me try to talk again. Tell me if you think this is a good. Are you way still to worked about up it. about the officiating? Yeah, this is this is way <laughs> too much. This is, this is like venison on steroids, man. Like I'm I'm too hopped up on this right now. But like, I was like, all right, if you took the Bucks for instance, or if you took the Cavs, okay. So if you take like Brooke Lopez and Giannis. And then, I don't know, Jay Crowder, Joe Ingles, whoever their forward is. Or you take the Cavaliers. You have Jared Allen, you have Evan Mobley, and then maybe, who knows, Isaac Okoro. Would the backcourt make that team like a championship-level team? Like, would they be able to fit in there? That's kind of how I was thinking of it. That's almost my starting point for how I was thinking of the best backcourt players. I, I would describe that. I think I would go a step more and say, you take a backcourt, and can you build around them? to create a championship level team in the front court. So in other words, the, the fit that they have, the skill sets that the backcourts have, you know, uh, Washington has Brad Beal and Monty Morris and DeLon Wright, like how that defense passing off ball, on ball, playmaking, versatility, switchability, that all that stuff, movement, how that all fits together with those guys, that's the backcourt. You're, you're locked into those players and building around them, right? We're on the same page there? Yeah, that sounds right. So you're expanding out to not even just the starters. We're talking like maybe three, the four players that make up their backcourt. I, I I think in this case, the instead of just looking at the starters, the game is so guard dominant now, and we have so many interesting sort of 
uh, amoeba-like small ball lineups where sometimes you turn on the Warriors game and they're like, Dante DiVincenzo is playing power forward. And you're like, now, wait a minute. He's like six three and a half, and uh, I thought he was a guard. Wasn't he playing backup point guard last year in Milwaukee? What what has happened? So I think in the, in the purpose of this thought experiment, I think now we have to include if you have a really good third guard or if your third or even maybe fourth guard off the bench gives you some team building versatility. That's the way I'm thinking about this. I'm taking that set of guards that you have and trying to build the best possible team um, once I have my run at, at front court players to fill around them. Okay. I think the thing that makes this really difficult is actually determining who counts as a backcourt player. Because I, I don't want to get stuck in those kinds of details. So let, let me just toss out a team to you right now. And you can, you can tell me who counts and who doesn't count for this. The Oklahoma City Thunder. Because when I go through it, like my initial thoughts is when I watch it, I'm like, all right, so they have uh, Shea Gildas-Alexander. He's a guard. And then I thought that Jalen Williams, the perimeter Jalen Williams, was a guard. And I also thought Josh Giddy was a guard. But if you look at the, the amount of like possessions they play at different positions, like Josh Giddy gets power forward minutes, and most of Jalen Williams' minutes are at small forward. So like for teams like this, how do you go ahead and determine who actually counts as their backcourt? I, I, I think... For the purpose of this exercise, we'll probably just stick with maybe like basketball references estimates at how many minutes they play. I mean, I think there's just going to be clearly some players like we were talking about Contavious Caldwell Pope in Denver right before we recorded. He's just like a classic two, three, right? Yes, there's positionless basketball. And yes, we we do ourselves a service by talking about players within their function, within their role. I think that's much better than the traditional point guard, shooting guard, et cetera, et cetera. But the reality is there's only five players on the court. And in this case, we're trying to really think about who you can put at the one and the two, those two smallest positions to win. Could, you know, do some of those guys, are you able to slide in a Jalen Brown back to shooting guard? He's played a lot more at forward this year. I think quote unquote forward, you know, being the, um, third biggest player instead of guarding one of the backcourt players all the time. I think you can do that with a guy like KCP. I think there are situations where you can call Josh Giddy a guard, but just for the purpose of the exercise, let's simplify things and say, if basketball reference, if they're estimates of where you're playing, if they think you're playing center and power forward, sometimes like some of the Oklahoma city thunder guys are, then probably the backcourt there is Shea and uh, I don't know, Trey Mann and Aaron Wiggins and Isaiah Joe and Lou Dort is actually probably the other, uh, you know, starting high minute backcourt guy there. And Jalen Williams, I find to be really difficult here because if you actually go to his basketball reference page at the top, he's listed as a shooting guard, like it's the position that they say. But if you go down to the play by play, he plays 56% of his minutes as small forward and 9% at power forward, according to this. So I don't know. This this is mostly for listeners out there. If you're like, you forgot so-and-so, what about, blah, blah. like, listen, <laughs> it, the, the position things gets complicated. If you want to count someone and you think we screwed over your team, sorry, like make your own list. Yeah. So with that said, um, it's a really fun thought experiment because I do think there are some teams where the third guard matters. I do think there are a lot of teams where the three guards play together and the three guard lineup is really interesting and we'll get to some of those. Um, but I mean, are there any other sort of, if, if we, if we try to do our classic top 10, 
We try to say here, here are the, of the 30 teams, here are the 10 best backcourts that we like. We'll try to make our way through them. We'll try to talk our way through them. Is there anybody we have to talk about before we do that? Like maybe the Boston Celtics. Mm. You're saying you don't think the Boston Celtics are going to make your higher up on your list here? I don't. I don't think so. Do you? Do, do, did you? If you look at them, do you? Th- I think I can get at least ten backcourts that are better than them. Okay, so when you're looking at the Celtics, we're looking at at Brogdon, White, and Smart, right? Correct. Yeah. Okay. I don't. I don't know. I guess. I don't know. Do you want to start with the Celtics? No, I just I I figured you you explicitly mentioned the Celtics, um, you know I think they're like an honorable mention team. I don't I think I think a team like Denver. You got Jamal Murray, but if we don't count KCP, you have a combination of lacking depth and lacking an All Star level player. I think what I want to see from the best backcourts is some level of fit, either offense and defense or both, ideally. And then talent. So the talent in this case is never really going to be like two all NBA level players, although there is a, a team we'll talk about that maybe fits that bill. Um, but, you know, I want like an all NBA level player. Maybe even if I could get an MVP ish type of guard up there, that's very valuable. I would love another all star or sub all star. And then if my third player is also a really strong quality starter or, um, you know, kind of like top 75 player with some specific skills that fit. That That's what I'm looking for when we do this exercise. Okay, that leads me to a couple of questions here, and I think the Celtics kind of fit into this compared to some other teams we'll look at. So number one, I think a really big question as to what you prioritize when you're looking at backcourts is whether or not you want to distribute or consolidate talent, right? Like, do you want multiple of these players to be, I don't know, maybe sub all-star, maybe flirting with all-star level player, or would you like to have maybe like an all-NBA, an MVP level player, and then a couple guys that can be like maybe a starter, maybe a bench level player, right? So consolidating versus, versus uh, you know, distributing the talent. Another one is like how many exploitable weaknesses does wait, the wait, group have? Wait, can wait, can we do the first one? Can yeah, we... stay there, yeah. Okay, no, because I think that's a, it's a very important place to start. Um you tell me, I feel like some people's instinct or maybe my first reaction is like, I want a superstar or the closest I can get to it, maybe a really strong all-star. And then from there, I'm not going to worry too much as long as I have like a really good player. But I actually think when you think about team building, I've talked about this before, two all-star players, especially if they, they fit together reasonably well, two all-star players... Um, that might be as valuable in some situations as like a flat-out MVP, like the flat-out best player in the league, like two all-star players playing together on the same team. I mean, heck, if you've got decent fit and you put a third all-star player on the team, you don't even need a top-10 player. Three all-stars, good coaching, good role players, um, you're basically a championship contender, right? Like that's that's really good. It's rare to have three or four all-stars. We don't get a ton of the 2004 Detroit Pistons kind of model teams. But historically, once you start stacking players at that level, you you get really, really competitive teams. Historically, general managers have almost never traded multiple all-stars for top 10 players. It almost never happens. I'm not even sure it's ever really happened. So I kind of might be going in the other direction here in that if I can get three really good guards on this list or 
two really, really good guards that are maybe like flirting with all-star kind of play and then another third player, I'm probably going to value that over having a top-heavy backcourt with just like one guy. So then I think the distribution of talent is kind of where you're landing here, like getting multiple really good players. I think that rolls into the next thing that I'm looking for is the exploitable weaknesses thing. Like, do the players that you have, do they have exploitable weaknesses that they're going to be unplayable in certain situations? And I think this is actually where I find the Boston Celtics trio, uh, again, of Brogdon, White, and Smart, to be really interesting. Because I don't think any of those three, especially this season, are at an all-star level play, right? Maybe flirting with sub-all-star. But these are three guys that... You know, maybe the shooting aspect when it comes to smart sometimes, but ultimately these are three guys that like you can play in a bunch of different lineups. They can cover you up pretty defensively. Brogdon, I don't think is near the level of white or smart defensively, but he can at least hold his own. He can be a pretty big body out there. I like the fact that you can roll them out in a bunch of different flexible lineups and do a bunch of different looks while also having three relatively good players. So because of that, I feel like Boston is is a little bit higher for me. Hmm. I like that. Let's keep talking this through. Um, Portland is a really interesting kind of backcourt in the other direction. They have Dame Lillard, who of course is having maybe his best offensive season of his career, just having a monster offensive year as one of the best offensive players in the league. I think by virtue of his offense, no matter how leaky you think his defense is, that makes him an all NBA type of player that maybe he's flirting with a top 10 player somewhere at the back of the top 10, maybe in the... Maybe in the what's what's the other side of the top ten? The the the, the teen no to teens is thirteen. What what do you call the low tens? What do you oh, call wow. that? Like eleven and twelve? Yeah. What do you call that? What's a shorthand term for that? Do we have that in this language? I feel like maybe we don't. A high double digit. Okay. Number? Yeah, you know what I'm saying. He's <laughs> he's somewhere in that range. And then you have Anthony Simons, and we've we've talked about Anthony Simons, I think, a while back on our legendary top twenty five under twenty five podcast that we did. I like his scoring juice. I like his shooting. We've talked about how good he is as an off-the-catch shooter, a wide-open shooter. Volume, is his quick release, his ability to organize and get into those shots quickly makes him a very explosive scorer. But man, just like Lillard, you're giving up a lot defensively. Maybe you have some redundancy there. Um, I feel like I'm maybe forgetting someone. They have Shaden Sharp coming off the bench, who's very young and also kind of like looking for that uh, explosive scoring kind of, you know, game. Is there is there anyone else you could put in there in the Portland? Now that, you know, uh, Gary Payton's gone, does does Matisse Thibel count as a guard? He feels like a forward to me. He feels like right. a forward to you. Okay. I think right. he's, well, I think he's regularly listed as a guard, and I think he guards a lot of guards. So, you know, maybe, and maybe that was the intention with getting him and then putting him back in the starting lineup or, or playing him heavy minutes. It's just like you have that defensive player who can kind of balance out what they have. I think it's an interesting juxtaposition with the Celtics because they have the one star is the fit. Great. You know, Matisse's thing is that he's exploitable on offense. He's an offensive weakness. Maybe with Lillard and Simons, you could attack them defensively. Whereas the Celtics, None of they don't have a single player overall or offensively that it's at Lillard's level, but they give you that ton of versatility. They give you a ton of defense, and all of them kind of fit next to other players as connective tissue. They can all shoot a little bit, they can all pass a little bit. Smart's probably the best passer of them all. And so you can play them next to other stars like 
Brown and Tatum that take up more offensive primacy and responsibility. And that's that's the other thing is is the fact that you can kind of slot them into a bunch of different lineups because if you throw out say Lillard and Simons, you kind of need like a like a Cleveland setup right? A Cleveland setup. We'll get to the Cleveland guards at some point because I think they're in a really good situation to showcase that, but they would need guys like Evan Mobley and and, uh, Jared Allen, Isaac Okoro, Lamar Stevens behind them to really maximize or take away the fact that they can be exploited uh, defensively. But I also think, I don't know, I'm not necessarily in love with Simons's inclusive offensive game. Like, I think he's an excellent scorer, but he doesn't necessarily get himself to the free throw line. He's not a great creator for other players. Um, so I, I don't necessarily know how much juice that gives to an offense. Like, it's really good, I think, if you slot him in as maybe a third option, maybe a second scoring option. But uh, ultimately, I think he's probably a little bit overvalued. Whereas Lillard, like you said, really excellent peak this year. But I think with the combination of Simons, I think that leaves a few more holes than you'd like. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Who who else trying to think of other other sort of teams that fit this bill of maybe not having the right fit. Let's let's jump to the most star-studded backcourt in the league, the Dallas Mavericks, Luka Doncic, Kyrie Irving. Um I guess you could throw in Tim Hardaway Jr. there as the third guard, but especially with Luka and Kyrie, I think the question is ball dominance and I think the question is defense. Uh, and even in Luca's case, as we've talked about what happens when he's away from the ball, but it's like, you've got these two huge guys. Is there too much redundancy? Are you still, are you still exploitable or giving up too much on the other end? I know you don't necessarily like this question, but I'm going to ask it to you anyway, because I, I, I think it's valuable, especially in this sort of, uh, thought experiment that we're going through. If you just straight up trade traded, Donovan Mitchell and Darius Garland to the Mavericks and swapped them with Luka and Kyrie. So you have Luka and Kyrie on the Cavaliers right now. How would you feel about the Cavaliers title odds at the moment? So the, so the Cavs have Luka, Kyrie Irving, whatever small forward they want to trot out there. Uh, who's that player who plays power forward that I like? Evan Mobley. Evan Mobley. Yeah. And Jared Allen. Yeah. I'm I'm just wondering how that what would that offense look like? Um Well, I mean, I think I feel like the offense would look like how it always looked. Like it's very Luca heavy ball. Like I don't think that would be any different, right? I think the difference though is we, what we see right now with the the Mavericks is with Kyrie and Luca what other defensive talent do they have? Like, they have Maxi Kleba out there, but I don't think he looks as good as he did last year, and I don't know if it's because the, the defensive context is is worse than it was last year, if he it's one of those where he's trying to do too much and he's not able to do it if he's not fully healthy, but they just have no defense behind those two. So I'd be interested to see what would happen if you completely changed it, and would those two be able to, to buoy a strong offense, kind of like what we've, been, what we've seen Darius Garland and, and Donovan Mitchell do behind these defensive stalwarts? Well, yeah, but I 
I think the Mavs have gone too far uh, defensively. I think Absolutely. they just don't have enough defensive talent. They were they were already small last year, right? They're already trying to play. Okay, Maxie's going to be a small ball guy. We'll even go to Dorian Finney-Smith. We'll take him from the four. We'll put him at the five. That's going to be our super small ball lineup. Dwight Powell's kind of a small player anyway as a big, um, especially with Maxie and Dwight. They're playing those guys because Dwight Powell gives them some defensive chops, even though he's not super vertical or big, and then he's a good role man. So you can space the court, open out the court, no one's in the paint, run your pick-and-roll game with Luka, and Powell is their best role man, basically. He's also their best screener. So he understands the angles and rescreens and the sort of chess match that a guy like Luka Doncic is going to play and operate out of in an offense like that, Maxi gives them a popping option. I think. I think getting rid of DFS. Um, I think they've just lost too much. I think. I think they were dancing on the head of a pin and they've fallen off, basically on defense. The thing is, Cody, if you put that backcourt on the Cavs, and you even attempted to run some of the same plays, you would have. Jared Allen as your screener and role man and whatnot, I think that would be fine. There's some differences with Allen. Um, excuse me. There's some differences with Powell. He's not nearly as quick, so you couldn't run some of the same like ghost. Dallas likes these like sprinting ghost screens, and then you get the lob and you create space. But I think you know Allen has strengths that um, Powell does not have. Mobley, but you, you lose a shooter with Mobley, and in the Cavs' case, you usually lose a shooter with their small forward because they're tr- they're just trying to find a small forward that can like tread water and provide defensive value. I don't know. I think they would obviously be better. It's it's a better infrastructure. It's a better front line. But if your thought here is that like you just trade those front courts and then that back court gives you a championship, I'm I'm not sure. What is that? What you're you were thinking? I think that they would probably jump up to be a favorite in my mind. A favorite, because, okay. Yeah, the way that I think about the NBA math in this one is when you have a play, when you have players like Kyrie and you have Luka Doncic together, right? And I've I've been pretty critical of Luka this season, and you know these last couple of weeks I don't know what's been going on with him. I know he's talked about maybe some stuff going on off the court. It, it's been showing, and I'm hoping that he's able to to get himself right before the end of the season here. Uh, but when both of them are right, you know I. I feel like the amount of offense you add to them would be some pretty solid diminishing returns, right? Like you can add shooters to them and add however much offensive juice you can squeeze out of that lemon, but I feel like you're actually going to get a better a better bang for your buck if you add defensive scheme around them. So even though you're like, eh, the offense might be a little bit rough, I don't necessarily see how it's going to fit compared to how the Mavericks do it. I'm like, great, I don't necessarily care. I think those two are smart enough and good enough offensive players that they can make it work around two genius level defensive players. Yeah, but but I think the issue there is there's is the shooting and spacing because you would essentially have three non-shooters with those guys and the Mavs kind of try to operate in the opposite the Mavs always want at least four shooters on the court um, or depending on how you feel about Luka three of the other four non-Luka players to be a shooter that, that's where it gets a little tricky for me um, where I think you're going to get better defense because of the front court but as long as you're still playing those three guys, you probably aren't going to have an elite offense with that system. That that's that's my issue. So yeah, I think the more I think about it, I would say they would be of course better than the situation Dallas is in, but I don't think I would make them 
title favorites, and it would be interesting to see if we were doing our end-of-season power rankings or our playoff preview that we're going to do, that we annually do coming up before the playoffs, if I would put them in our inner circle of title contenders. My my hunch is I might not. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. I I think that's pretty hot. So let let me ask you this then, because right now the Cavaliers, their offense is about a point and a half better than league average, which I think puts them at seven on the season. Seventh with Darius Garland and Donovan Mitchell. Do you think if they had Luka and Kyrie, would their offense be worse or better than it is right now with Garland and Mitchell? Uh, I think it would be similar. That would be my hunch. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I can definitely see a world where I think it's a little better. I don't think you would... Um, what are our top three offenses right now? About plus four, something like that this season? Yeah. Is that plus, right? <laughs> Sacramento's plus 4.08. Sacramento's up to plus 4.8? Yeah. Okay, so so they're plus five. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think... They would quite be there, but I could see, I could certainly see it being a little better. Um, I could also see a world where it's, you know, a touch worse and, and there are complaints or things like that. Um, because, I mean, why don't we just jump to Cleveland? Mitchell and Garland, like those are, we've done this before. Those are two of the better offensive players in the league themselves. They both have off ball game. They're both tremendous shooters. Um, neither really requires playing heavy spread pick and roll. So it's a little different, right? You wouldn't necessarily stack up Luca and Kyrie and Garland and Mitchell and go, oh yeah, they, I, most people are going to pick the Cleveland guys first or anything like that in a vacuum. I don't think you would do that. But this is the interesting part of the thought experiment to me. When you start to put the players together in a backcourt, especially since you pick Cleveland, this is why I don't like the thought experiment of like only think about this one team because I do think Cleveland's a very extreme team right now the way they're built they have two of the better like what 15 12 or 15 offensive players in the whole world um, or at least the NBA on their team and then they play a lot of lineups with three non-shooters which you know most teams don't even most teams don't even dare trot out two non-shooters these days let alone three Um, so yeah I, I think the Cleveland backcourt is is very good as well. I think they're sort of in this inner group of, you know, contenders for the for the best backcourt in the league. We haven't talked about Ricky Rubio as a backup, although I think he's purely a backup here. And then they could go three-guard lineup that you see sometimes where you have Garland, Mitchell, and Karis LeVert. But the Cavs backcourt presents their own problems because they're all really small and none of them are uh, writing books about defense. Let's put it that way. <laughs> That that's kind of why I like the Cleveland construction for talking about the Mavericks and the Cavaliers because I feel like both the both of the duos there kind of require a really specific defensive shell around them, right? Like that's the thing that they need because both of them struggle on defense. Though I'd I'd venture to say that Garland Mitchell probably struggle more on D even D than Kyrie and Luca. I think when Luca ramps it up, he can be a bit better just because he's a bigger body. But the other thing that I like that I think definitely puts the Cavaliers and the Mavericks above the Celtics for me not to like you know I mean totally do it not not to like whatever I'm going with this Ben what, what are you saying kind of, Cody what I'm are you, making what are you these saying? rankings as I'm going I'm making <laughs> these unofficial rankings as I'm going uh so I think both the Cavaliers and the Mavericks would be above the Celtics just because you can stagger them a little bit better and I think when you consolidate and have multiple of these really good players you can stagger the minutes better in which case you know you have the additive properties of the fact that they all kind of have these off-ball games and they can do well when they're on the court together 
together. But also you look at lineups with like Darius Garland on the court without Donovan Mitchell, that Cavs team is really, really good still, right? Same with Mitchell. I don't think the numbers are quite as good with Mitchell without Garland. But the fact is, is you can play either one and still have some juice for the full 48 minutes as opposed to just when they're playing. So uh, I think that in itself puts the Cavaliers and the Mavericks, wherever you have the Celtics, you have them above them at least. Okay, um, let's talk about a team that I would say has more balance across the potential three-guard lineup. Let's talk about my New York Knicks, mm-hmm. where you've got Jalen Brunson cooking people at point guard, not necessarily playmaking and like heliocentric offense that's going to get you to that Sacramento Kings 120 offensive rating, but he can pass a little bit, and of course... A lot of on-ball scoring, really dynamic scoring punch. Um, and then you've got Emmanuel Quickly off the bench. This We've talked about him before. Good shooter, very good defender, can attack closeouts so he can play off-ball a little bit. And, and I think for the sake of the thought experiment, we're going to count some of these players like KCP. So we'll count Quentin Grimes here as, as the third member of that backcourt. Uh, another defender, another shooter, another extra passer, attack closeout guy. So you kind of have like one star. The star isn't super high end, um, but you've got three really good backcourt players that maybe maybe a little bit like the Celtics where you're not looking at obvious weaknesses. You're looking at more complementary skills. How do you feel about them compared to the teams we've talked about? Can I ask you an either-or question right now? Can I put you on the spot about two players, Ben? You always put me on the spot, so let's let's do it. I'm ready. You should. This 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 has been a long time coming, Ben. This question right here. This is just when we're doing it publicly. Uh, Emmanuel quickly or Tyrese Maxey? Quickly. What? <laughs> <laughs> okay. 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 Here's here, here's the thing. Yeah, you know, I've been thinking about this more. Okay. Um. I I think. I think Maxi clearly has a gear on offense that quickly doesn't have right now. Of course, when Brunson goes out and you watch quickly get more opportunities and more reps, you, you start to think like, oh, I could see that shrinking real fast because some of their skill sets are pretty similar in terms of quickness, in terms of floater game. I mean, quickly, frankly, probably has a better floater. His, his floater game is fantastic. And then just their ability as shooters um, – but I, I do think right now Maxi is more consistent and more capable of carrying more stuff on offense. But I don't love Maxi on defense, and I do like quickly quite a bit on defense. He's versatile, he's consistent, he holds up, he's quick, he gets around screens, he's good in help position. Um, so I do think it's close. And the thing I've been thinking about a lot more lately. So in this sense, you didn't put me on the spot. I already, I already did the homework beforehand. It's like, for a guard like that, are there just going to be more team constructions where you'd rather have the defensive guy in the playoffs at this point? So the, the, the real scientific answer is I'm not sure. I think they're close enough that it's a debate either way, which is why I wanted to ask you a couple weeks back. But like, I've, I've been in my head moving more toward the quickly side of this, if that makes sense. Okay. I like that. And on the floater topic, I think you pointed this out once to me, and now I'm seeing it all the time whenever I have Philadelphia on. Tyrese Maxey just kind of has this thing with organizing his feet on the floater where it's like, 
take one more step or yeah, take one yeah, more yeah. dribble. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I've, I've been noticing that more. But yeah, the point that you make about the Knicks that I think is interesting is, you know, you compare them, their their backcourt to the Mavericks, you compare them to the Cavaliers. It's clear those other two teams have better offensive players, right? But like you said, kind of like the Celtics, these players are going ha- are, are to are handle defense quite a bit better. Like Brunson, I think he's a stout enough defender. I think the fact that he's shorter, not a huge wingspan, he's not a vertical athlete, like he's not going to be moving the needle on defense, but he at least works on defense. And I think he can stay in front of people. And he's he's got a good center of gravity, right? He's got a good strength to him. So I don't think you can necessarily take advantage of these three. Grimes is just all over the place. I, I love this man. He's crashing around. He's pretty cool. Uh, but again, I don't think he's quite as good as, as Brunson or Quickly. So I think it's interesting because you have three guys that are good. One guy who's, I don't know, Brunson's maybe like an all-star, sub-all-star level player. And so they're probably at least like in the same conversation as the Celtics, but I still think the Celtics trio is better defensively overall than this three. Oh, I, I agree they're better defensively, but are you saying in your in your running rankings that we have going in the show that you still have the Celtics three over the Knicks? Man, I, again, I don't, I don't necessarily know if you like this, but I'm like, what if I just swapped these three with those three? Like, how would the Celtics look? Well, yeah, but the 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 issue is, do the do the Celtics need a a small jitterbug on ball scorer. And I would say, no, that's not what they need. Right? Like even just moving smart to point guard and having him be pass first and facilitate first seemed to help them a lot last season in their two way construction. Cause you get the defensive upgrade with him going to point guard and offensively he acts as a, as a stabilizing force as a rudder for those two other big scorers. So I would, I think they need more of a playmaking guard, first and almost a defensive guard that's why I don't like that construction whereas there's plenty of teams where it's like hey if you could just get them some scoring even the Knicks team right like the Knicks team going Julius Randle please be a primary offensive player versus Julius Randle let Jalen Brunson cook whenever he wants and he's going to carry a big load Um, I'm really excited just to see their playoff series and cough possible two playoff series, depending on how crazy things get in the first round. Um, Because I do think that's going to make a big difference. And that's exactly where you, you would not get that at all from any of the Celtics backcourt. You know, I I was having a conversation, shout out to uh, Scott Levine and Nate Georgie, big Celtics fans out there. And they were, they were making the case uh, saying that like what the Celtics are really good at. That's maybe even better than most other teams is when an advantage is created they're able to just keep the advantage going with like their top eight or so guys. And I think the thing about smart, white, Brogdon, Brogdon's probably the best at creating his own advantage out of nothing as opposed to the other guys. But those three, if you can get them to get by their guy, if you can get them getting into the paint and kicking out and creating that way, they're really good at creating in that situation. Whereas when you compare it to like Brunson and quickly, like Brunson especially, that jitterbug kind of dribbling, he can create that own sort of advantage. So it's one of those things where like that ability to take advantage of almost like a half advantage or an already created advantage it, I don't know. I think that's what I find so enticing about the Celtics team. Because if you have somebody that can create that advantage, I think they slot in so perfectly next to those other guys. Whereas, like Brunson, I don't necessarily know if I love its off-ball shooting. Obviously, quickly and Grimes are, are especially quickly good shooter off-ball. So I don't know. Maybe I'm in, too in love with the ability to keep the, the half advantage going of the Celtics. Well, I think shout out to the Celtics management for that team construction where... You get these players that 
we're talking about guards and backcourts would fit perfectly next to two forwards who can carry most of the offense. What do the Celtics have? That's exactly what they have. We're calling Jalen Brun- uh, Brown a, a forward this year because he plays more forward than he has. By the way, my, my man Brunson catching strays out here from Cody, 42% on his wide open threes okay. the last three seasons, 43% on his catch and shoot threes. That's in the 93rd percentile. It's okay. one of the things I like about this backcourt. Don't don't mess with these guys. You leave them open. Okay. And they will make their shots. Yeah. I, I I was wrong. I for some reason I thought he was a little worse than that. But yeah. I'll I'll accept that gracefully, Ben. Um while we're talking about balanced three team guys, there's a couple more we've got to get to. Then I gotta ask you uh, uh some some questions about more top heavy two two player backcourts. Let's just let's do it, Cody. Let's talk about Tyus Jones. I know you want to. Oh my goodness. Uh I I'm gonna give you the floor. Make your case for the Memphis Grizzlies as having the best backcourt in the league. So I find this really interesting, Ben. Okay. 737 minutes together. Bane and Jaw, plus 14 and a half. Next. Bane and Jaw, when they're yeah. on the court, are plus 14 and a half? Plus 14 and a half. And okay. so I think what's really interesting here, Jaw Morant, I don't know. All-NBA player, flirting with all-NBA level player this season. I don't necessarily know. I was trying to deep dive his defense to see how I feel about it. I couldn't get a good read on it right before this episode, so that's still to be determined. Uh, but, you know, he's a little less efficient than he was last season, but he still got just... I mean, again, I don't know if anyone, anyone in the league is better at creating off the bounce and getting into the paint. Like, I don't think you can stay in front of him. We saw that in the playoffs. Teams are just like, all right, I guess he's just getting into the paint. We'll have to figure it out from there. Bain, I think, has taken another step. I think the minutes that he has without Jaw, he looks fantastic. His passing improves continually. Again, like Brunson, he's just like a bigger Brunson on defense, like a stout dude, not necessarily the longest wingspan, not a vertical athlete, but he can work. He's physical with you, and I think he adds at least a little bit of value there and then Tyus Jones man listen I gotta say one thing because I've seen this out in the world at one point I think people took me as saying that I compared Tyus Jones to the Celtics great Dennis Johnson no what I actually said on that podcast is defensively when Jaws off the court and Tyus Jones is in it's like seeing Dennis Johnson because of how much of a mess I thought Jaw was on Mm. defense earlier in the season that's that's all I was saying I don't think Tyus Jones is an all defensive level uh player or anything but he's at least solid and I don't know man he had this play I forgot who he was playing I sent it to all of you guys because I was so excited I threw the Grizzlies on for one one minute right he gets this stampede drive drives in Jaron Jackson dives after the motion strong on the other side hits him cutting in for a dunk I'm like this man is just brilliant so it was it was the best play of his career okay let's relax let's just relax for a second so we have an all NBA level player a possibly all-star level player and then just like one of the best backups in the league Mm, that's a good, that's a compelling case. If you're not watching on YouTube, um, it's because Cody's hair is down and it's blowing in the wind, and it was just it was carrying him through that whole segment. John Morant, possibly All NBA, Bain. I can't remember what we did with him. Definitely a sub All Star. Really really nice player. Tyus Jones, very good backup. Um, I'm just gonna put them over on the side. I okay. I think I might prefer them. Because Bain is not a slouch on defense. And, of course, neither is Tyus Jones. And both those guys can shoot. And Morant's rim pressure and some of his scoring against elite defenses. I I think I'm going to put those guys on the side. I might prefer them to anyone that we've talked about. 
so far. Um, we've talked about some juggernauts. Let let me let me let's take a step back. We have a few more a few more to consider before we sort this out and um, then get yelled at by everyone for how we did it. Phoenix, it. yell at me. <laughs> Devin Booker. He's playing at a very high level. Speaking yes. of, you know, all NBA. Chris Paul. I don't know quite what to make of Chris Paul. He's clearly fallen off since his 37th birthday. Um, do they have another guard that's even really relevant for this conversation? Do, do you count Terrence Ross? Cam Cameron Payne? Well, campaign I, I campaign, I think, would be their third best guard. And I, I just, you know, if that, if we're looking at him as a trio at that, that third position, that's a drop down to me um, compared to like quickly compared to Tyus Jones, compared to some of the third players that we've talked about. Okay. Yeah. So the thing about this group, I really like Devin Booker this year, by the way. Like, I think he's, even last year, I think people talked about him last year as taking a big step up. I think he's made a huge stride from last season to this season. I think his rim pressure seems a little bit better. Uh, He's better at picking his spots. Defensively, I think he's about the same as last season. I don't necessarily know if he's made strides from that. But offensively, I just like it a little bit more. But Chris Paul, offensively, I'm a little bit worried about him. Not even a little bit. I'm pretty concerned about Chris Paul offensively holding up. I think defensively, he's still got the hands. He's still got the awareness. He's still a strong guard for his size. But I I just don't know about Chris Paul's offense. Yeah. No, I agree with you. Um, I do think with Booker, you have one of the best overall players we've talked about here. Um, He does seem to continue to get a little bit better. And then Paul, I mean... The thing is, you're still getting some value from Paul just in terms of the Chris Paulness of the whole thing, the decision making and the guile and, you know, the defensive stoutness and the wherewithal and communicating on that end. So I do think you're still talking about a good player relative to some of these second or third guards that we're talking about. But I feel like they're I feel like this is a very top heavy backcourt in that Booker is the primary driver. There's a pretty good drop-off to Paul, who's also pretty good. And then I think there's even a bigger drop-off to the third player, uh, in this case, let's say campaign, where in the case of some of the other teams we were talking about earlier, that third player is still good. Like, he's still part of a package that you're either playing all three guards or able to swap out one of the other guards for a different look for 20 minutes a game that gives you playoff versatility, that gives you better fit, things like that. So... Really interesting case in Phoenix. Um, I guess there's another team. I don't know if they're exactly like that, but I was having a hard time thinking of who the third guard would be. Uh, what do you think of the Minnesota Timberwolves backcourt? Does they, wait, does Anthony Edwards, is he a guard? Does he count as a guard? He feels like a guard to me. Yeah, I, I think he's a guard. I mean, he's certainly been playing a lot of guard because when you got those two bigs, Gobert and Carl Anthony Towns, then you get McDaniels. Um, who's playing the small forward. It'll be interesting to see if McDaniels makes an all-defensive team this year. He's been great on defense all year, but that leaves Anthony Edwards at the two. According to basketball reference, he does play two-thirds of his minutes there, so I think we have to count him, which means you get Mike Conley. You get some late-stage Mike Conley, 35-year-old Mike Conley, and Anthony Edwards, and I'm not sure who the... The next one, like, is it Jalen Noel? This is another team that feels like they don't really have uh, a third guard that's really 
um, relevant to the to the package that you get. No, the backcourt package. Think about Conley. I'm moving towards like a vibes place analysis, Ben. A vibes based analysis. I think if you really want to be a great team, you should bring some good vibes to your team. And I think Mike Conley's kind of in the Drew Holiday like school of great vibes and great leadership to your team. So he just automatically gets a bump for me. I don't think it's enough of a bump to really make them competitive in this conversation, though, if we're being honest. Okay. Um, that's fair. Who have we, who have we not talked about? There's three, there's, there's four teams. There's four teams left uh, that I want to talk about. What were you going to say? Let's talk about, we talked about his, his, his other half so far. So we should probably talk about the Philadelphia 76ers. Yeah. That's one of the four teams I want to talk about. You've got, Tyrese Maxey, you have DeAnthony Melton, who I also like as a role player, a defender, 3 and D, modern 3 and D, whatever that is. And then, of course, James Harden, uh, non-all-star <laughs> James Harden, Disgusting. who I think I uh, strongly feel is an all-star player this season and still one of the best offensive players in the game. So maybe it's a similar construction in that sense, Cody, where you've got like Harden compared to Booker, Maxi compared to Paul, and then well, I do I do like Melton better than a guy like Campaign or whoever Minnesota's third player would be. Um, and then thinking about fit is interesting because Harden is still heavily on ball. I think you have some defensive weaknesses there. Maxi has some defensive weaknesses, but at least Melton is a strong defender. He's not huge, so it's not like you can comfortably stick him on forwards and playoff series and change your matchups that way necessarily, but still a good defender. I don't know. I think they're one of the better backcourts in the league. An interesting case to to talk through. I'm sure you have thoughts. Yeah, I think because I'm, I'm trying to stay at the top line comparison right now. And I don't know if you want to get too much into the weeds here. I guess we already did one of these. Who, who would you, who would you evaluate a higher player right now? Harden or Booker? Oh, that's an interesting question. I, I my gut is Booker. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I'm sure you could talk me into something that would change that a little bit, but um, yeah, it feels like Booker is. Do you, do you agree with that? Yeah, I, I, honestly, I honestly don't know. I think the thing okay. is, is like Booker's at least probably not a negative on defense at the moment, and Harden probably is. And I don't know if you think you'd have to think that Harden, I think, is a much better or at least a clearly better offensive player than Booker at the moment. And I think that would be a tougher case to make. Although, again, like I think the synergistic interplay between Embiid and Harden have... I don't know. I've been really impressed with that in Harden. The fact that Embiid plays so much better when he shares the court with Harden, I think that's pretty fantastic. I think that's a really nice case for Harden, and I don't necessarily think you would get that same interplay with Booker. So I don't know. I think you can make the case either way. Well, it's different. It goes back to the Luka, Kyrie, Cleveland versus Dallas philosophical point, where with Harden, you're going to get that on-ball playmaking. So there's some trade-offs there. You, you want to run more stuff with him. You potentially want pick-and-roll partners and pick-and-roll constructions like they have, um, but you're not necessarily going to run something that is movement-heavy, egalitarian. Uh, it's not necessarily going to have a ton of DHO, middle-of-the-court hub kind of stuff like another team we should talk about, Sacramento Kings. Um, those guys, you've got... Darren Fox, 
again with all these two three players these these shooting guards slash small forwards using the traditional construction that we're talking about Kevin Herter is one of these guys just like going back to Atlanta he's playing more shooting guard so he's part of the backcourt uh, and I think I think functionally and spiritually that works as well the way he plays and the skill set he has in today's game and then you got Malik Monk coming off the bench and if you if you want to get really jiggy with it I mean, you can you you can count Davion Mitchell as the fourth member here because he gives you some on-ball defense as a look. Um, I mean, I don't even know if we need to go that deep in the depth chart, but like those three guys are really interesting: Fox, Monk, and Herder, for obvious reasons. Because you get a mix of shooting, you get a mix of movement, you get some playmaking from all of them. All of them have synergized very well with. Demonis Sabonis and the DHO stuff they're running. We've talked about that team a, a lot in terms of the movement and screening and and the offensive principles. And then they can all play at pace and especially Fox, you know, one of the most successful speedy point guards in the league. But cr- credit to Malik Monk. Like one of the things that I think we talked about when we were talking about best bench players in the league that had me so high on him relative to the other players we talked about, he can play really fast. So all of a sudden... It's like you need to push, you need to make you need to make decisions at pace that the Kings offense is set up. Monk does that too. So yeah, I mean you, you tell me, but I think you've got you've got a guy in Fox who's definitely playing like an all-star. Um yeah. he, he's playing very well. And then Kevin Herter and Monk are both really good offensive weapons. Probably hard to name seventy five players in the league you'd rather have than those guys. That that's a nice trio. I think what's interesting about Fox is, is the, the criticism I had of him. You know, I, I had some harsh words for him earlier. I think it, this was behind the scenes I was talking to some people. And I was, I was pretty out on Fox before this, this pretty incredible uh, season that the Kings have been having. But I think the main criticism would be his passing, right? He kind of creates good passing angles because his first step is, is ridiculous. Like he's in the top tier of just being able to get by guys and get into the paint. But in terms of like manipulating defenses and making looks, I think he's been better than I expected. But I also think the fact that he synergizes so well with Sabonis, that he synergizes with with uh, Herder and Monk and these all these other guys, I think that's a good thing for him. The fact that he's able to slot in as a guy that's not necessarily a spacer and be part of like a unit that's just the best offensive in the league, I think that's really commendable. So I, I don't know. Do you see Fox as being an all NBA level player? This season, because I even think when we talk about defense in terms of like Mitchell, in terms of Garland, in terms of Harden, in terms of Booker, is Fox better defensively than all of them? Yeah, I think he is. I mean, mm-hmm. Fox has always been weird defensively and that I think he has the potential hmm. to always be better than all of them. But when you're the combination of being really small and then sometimes sort of... Um, vaporizing at the point of attack. That's how it feels sometimes with these small guards. They can't get around the screen. They can't get into the player. They're not long and disruptive. And it's like, it just doesn't create friction for the offense. It's a very smooth experience. I think those two things have hurt him defensively. But you watch him and it goes back to the video I made on him years ago. Like he'll have possessions with really good hawkish on-ball defense out in space, moving his feet, uh, disrupting the ball handler. And then off the ball, he can be very quick to make rotations on the weak side. So he does have these moments where you're like, oh, he's he's played a good defensive game tonight. And I'm not sure you can say that about some of the other weaker defender, re- weaker defensive guards that we've hit in this episode. 
I do think defense is an issue with this group. Mm-hmm. I do think that's the issue. You know, as 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 great as the Kings have been, as great as of a story, um, the offensive stuff, the X's and O's, Mike Brown's coaching, we could, I feel like we could talk about forever. Just one of the great stories of the year, one of the most fun teams for me to watch. The We do have to remember that it's offense leaning into defense and this backcourt isn't really an exception. It's not like you can throw out some balanced defensive stoppers or things like that. It goes back to your point about the Celtics um, and just having more of those players or the Knicks, just having more of those players. It's, it's an interesting thing to be able to generate. Let, let me ask you a question. Yes. Golden State Warriors. They've got Steph Curry. Yeah, probably the best player in this conversation. Probably the best player on this list for my money. Yep. Yeah. Um, actually, I'd say, yeah, I'll say probably. Um, I'm going to say definitely. I'm going to go out and say the definitely. Okay, okay. Yeah. I was, I really, like, Luca is also in this conversation, so I no, realize, no. you know, we're, we're top seven-ish players on the planet. You can go either way for some people. But, yeah, I, I would take Curry. Um, Clay Thompson, same thing as Herter. Yep. We're going to talk about him as a guard here. He obviously can and does play some forward. Traditionally has been a guard. If Andrew Wiggins were back, he would go back and start at shooting guard. Jordan Poole off the bench. Kind of similar to a few of the other players we've talked about. Anthony Simons, um, even Maxi in some functional sense. You're giving up defense. And I think Jordan Jordan Poole's defense, Jordan Poole's defense this season has been clearly worse than it was last season. Some of his decision, some of his decisions and communication at the point of attack have just they've obviously been a disaster. And then offensively, he's an interesting player in the sense that he's not to me consistently good enough on offense and we talked about it I think at sub all-star time like he's not consistently good enough like a Brunson was last year to just go yeah I gotta have this dude in my in my top like he's just giving me so much value on offense consistently that he's probably a top 50 player even with the defensive shortcomings but he's interesting in the sense that the couple games in a series that he's on or the two the two out of three nights during the week that he's on um like he can swing the game, you know, he'll, he'll give you 32 off the bench on high efficiency, uh, spaces, the floor plays movement, handoff, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, is he their third best player after clay Thompson? Do you get a bonus defender in Dante DiVincenzo in this group as a fourth guard? Cody, what are we doing with this team? This is a really tough one. So you talk about Jordan Poole and and the fact that he like brings it a couple times a week. I think back to the Warriors 76ers game that happened recently. He was just, he was unstoppable. The 76ers didn't know what to do with him. And it was just kind of like this, this one, two punch between Curry and Poole. That was just, the 76ers had no answer, right? They have Melton, they have Embiid, who's a good defensive player. Even Paul Reed, when he was out, nothing, right? They were just on fire. And then when I think back to even what yesterday's game, who who are the Warriors playing yesterday? What was the Pelicans, the Pelicans in this really heated Western conference, like tight to the final race here. Clay Thompson and Curry just became like 2016 Clay Thompson and Curry. Like I'm talking like just catching five feet behind the line. Clay Thompson's like, oh, I guess I'll just shoot. Bang. Steph Curry. Oh, guys in my face. I'm just going to pull up. Bang. And so like that fear, that ability of like going into the past and being like, I've seen this too many times. It makes me a little nervous. But then also trying to like reconcile that with the fact that like Clay is just not what he used to be. Poole isn't as good as he was last season. So I don't know. They're like high end to me is like the players that I want to have, but the low end still is Stephen Curry. So I don't know. 
Yeah. From one hand, you can look at it and say they're very top heavy. That's kind of what it feels like. Yeah. Um, On the other hand, you can look at it and say, we know how the fit of this thing works. You've got multiple movement shooters. One of these guys, at least in Clay Thompson, still defends multiple positions pretty well. He can switch. Steph Curry has become a solid guard defender, right? Um, And then it's like the three of these guys are hot. I I don't know. I don't know how we're going to do this. I don't know how we're going to... We only have one more team left to talk about, I think, right? The Atlanta Hawks? Yeah. Yeah, I'm looking at some other teams. I'm guessing you don't want to... Do you want to talk about the Pacers or Thunder at all? We kind of talked about the Thunder, but do you want to talk about them more? Ah, uh, the Pacers? I don't think... No. Now that I'm I don't think they're, I don't think Halliburton and Heald and whoever else you want to throw in as a third guard is probably going to be enough to to uh, crack you know, the teams that we've talked about. Okay. So I think it's the Hawks. I think it's the... And, and we started the season by saying the fit with Trey Young and DeJounte Murray, I don't love it. Um... Bogdan Bogdanovich is he the I think he's a guard third guard there he seems like a guard yeah so I don't I don't know is that is that team I mean obviously in a vacuum Trey Young is a fantastic offensive player in a vacuum DeJounte Murray is a good defensive player as a guard uh I don't know would you take it would you take the Atlanta backcourt over any of these guys we've talked about in your in your moving power rankings in your head as we go through this well let me ask you this would you take the atlanta backcourt over the thunder backcourt the thunder backcourt are shea and lou dort and like isaiah joe or something yeah uh when you said that i thought cody that's crazy of course i'll take the hawks and then and then by the time i had to start answering there was like a part of my brain that was like Hold on, Ben. Not so crazy. Because Shea, I think Shea's definitely had a better year than Trey Young. Oh, yeah. Um, He's been a better player this year than Trey Young. And then as much as he has, like, weaknesses and warts, I kind of like Lou Dort out there just being Lou Dort on defense and just, it's like, hey, it's not so easy. It's not so easy to play 38 minutes a night against Lou Dort. And even though I don't think he's in the same class yet as these other guys, like at least Isaiah Joe can shoot. Has I, have you ever seen Isaiah Joe miss a three? No, I've never seen him. No, I've never seen him miss. Ever. He's no. never missed a three ever. No. I'm convinced of it. Yeah. Yeah. He's shooting 100% <laughs> on threes. Um, so I don't know. I don't know. But but with that said, I don't think Oklahoma City is going to be making my final cut here. So... Um, yeah, I th- let's do it. Let's do what, it. What do we do? When you say final cut, are we talking 10 or 5? No, let's do let's do 10. Why not? Ten. Oh my god. Okay. Let's Okay. You, is it too much? Maybe. Did we talk about 10 teams? Oh, we we've talk- talked about like we, Cody, we've talked about like 15 teams. Okay. We've talked about unless, unless you want to circle back and get some Chicago Bulls, Zach Levine, Io DeSumo. See, that's the thing. If you have like a sub all-star-y, borderline all-star, that's your best player. And then there's a big drop-off. And then your third player is kind of like an Isaiah Joe. Like not, I think the Celtics' third best player, you could make an argument as a sub all-star. I think anytime you can do that with one of these third best players, even the Knicks, you don't have to make an explicit argument for Grimes as a sub all-star. But like 
am I going to get, am I going to pick a team and have 85 players on my draft board for picking an NBA team before I get to Quentin Grimes? Probably not because of the complementary skills that we've talked about. Those Danny Green skills, shooting, defense, uh, versatility, attacking closeouts. They don't do too much. Um, and in, and in Quentin Grimes case, he loves a big shot. He loves a big shot from the wing in Madison Square Garden. Oh man. When do, when do the playoffs start, Cody? How long do I have to wait for too the playoffs? Long, it's far too long. In, in the, in the same vein, trust me, I would love to have, I would love to have the Milwaukee Bucks here just because Drew Holiday, I think is in that sort of conversation, but I don't know, like Chris Middleton's mostly a forward. So it's like Drew Holiday and, and Javon Carter. Like I, that's just not enough. Uh, all right. Who's your, who are you, who are your 10 backcourts? Give me your 10 backcourts. Where are we start? Are we starting at 10 or 1? What a, I almost, let's start at 10. God, we have to count back. I don't even know what it is for. Don't even ben. count backwards. Don't count in any order. I just want to know if you have 10 back, 10, 10 backcourts. What I really want to know is what the heck you're doing with Cleveland and Dallas. How do you, how do you feel about those backcourts? Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to make a pick between those two. I'm going to take, I, I would take Dallas over Cleveland. Okay, I'll take. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Gabe. Of thinking basketball, he's he's crying. He's <laughs> reeling in a quarter somewhere. But I'm taking Dallas over. Cleveland. Gabe is beside himself. Gabe doesn't know what's happening. Um, what about Dallas versus Sacramento? I'm also taking Dallas. Uh, what about Dallas versus Philadelphia? I am. Also taking Dallas. (laughs) Okay, so it sounds like you think if Dallas had like a normal team construction, if they had like, I don't know, what's a normal team construction? Steven Adams at center and Jaron Jackson at power forward. Oh my God. And then a small forward that could shoot and play defense. Who's a small forward? Quentin Grimes. Oh my God. At small forward. (laughs) That's a team, Ben. That's it a, sounds Kevin like Garnett that is yelling about the squad that we have right now. That's there's going to be a championship. Is that what you're saying? I think that's a really good team. Okay. Okay. And what did I just say? I said, uh, like Steven Adams, Adams, Jaron Jackson, and Quentin, Quentin Grimes. Grimes. Okay. Now, now give me that team with the Memphis backcourt. Which one do you like better? Oh, Ben, what, what about you? I've, I've been, I've been doing too much. This is hurting too much. What would you do between those two? Well, I'm stalling because uh, I kind of feel like I kind of feel like it's hard to take down that Memphis that Memphis trio. I guess the Warriors could take down that Memphis trio if you believe in all of the Warriors because I think their fit is is strong. I think once you have those, like once you get multiple of these players, Curry, Poole, Clay. I know everyone out there. Uh, for a long time has said, like, it's a system. It goes back, you know, Steve Nash, he was in the system. You know, Steph Curry's in the system. No, Steph Curry is the system. <laughs> but but when you have him, whether you want to play him and, and play more point, like on-ball pick-and-roll stuff, whatever, I think that all goes out the window regardless of who your coach is when you have Curry and Clay and Poole because you can unlock all those things at the same time. You can play pick-and-roll, but in today's NBA – the playbooks all have a ton of movement. They all have a ton of Golden State Warriors sets from the last decade. So I think their fit is really nice, regardless of their 
struggles. So I think Golden State's got to be up there at the top for me. I think Memphis has to be up there at the top for me. We talked about Dallas and Cleveland. I have a fun one. Philadelphia versus Sacramento. Which of those do you prefer? Philadelphia versus Sacramento. I would go Philadelphia. You would just, you, you don't even think about it. I would go over, I would go Philadelphia. Oh, man. Um, I would go Philadelphia. Kind of feel like Sacramento, that trio. Ooh, talk me through it. Why do you think, why do you think that? Well, uh, let's say that in a vacuum, Harden is a better offensive player than Fox. Um, no, I'm changing my mind now. Changing my mind. Yeah. <sighs> I like the melt. I think the Melton variable is really fascinating for Philadelphia. Yeah, the, that, that's, that was I saw that defensive player there, and I was like, "That's a that's a tough one to sell." But I mean, uh, I think I'd rather have Kevin Herter than than Maxi. Okay. Yeah. So it's that's the defensive part is very interesting to me, and then Monk gives you way more offensive punch than Melton. Could you could you could you have the Sacramento backcourt? And then have a rim protector, have Bam, Bam out of bio as your center. So you still play DHO, high post, hub basketball mm-hmm. off of these guys. You can get a lot of speed because you could get like, uh, I don't know. I don't want to give up too much shooting. It's going to throw Jared Vanderbilt in a lineup there. Oh, my God. Or <laughs> Just throw him into every lineup. That's, that's what every team needs, Ben. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um I think it sounds like you really like the Celtics as one of the 10 best backcourts. I think I do, but I don't know if I would take them over any of the teams we just said. Right. Okay. Give me Celtics versus Timberwolves. Celtics or Timberwolves? Uh, Celtics. Yeah. So, really? Yeah, I'm taking Celtics. It, am, I, am I missing something? It feels like Conley and Edwards are both better than, well, I guess you, Conley you could put in a, in a similar tier, but certainly Edwards is the best player of the group, right? Wait, 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 wait. You think Conley's in the same tier? As, as White, Smart, and Brogdon? You don't think so? I don't think so. Okay. I don't think so. Really? And, and there's three of them. I don't even know who the third guard would be. Well, there the are three of them, but where, where, are, are we just saying that Mike Conley's fallen off a lot? Is that... I think so. Yeah. What is he? He's like 38, isn't he? Yeah, he's 30. He's 30 this is 35 season. <laughs> Close enough. You, you Not just every aged, point guard can be Steph Curry. You aged Mike quite a bit. I feel like, I feel like Conley is in a similar... Even if you say he's he's the worst of those four, I don't think he's that far behind. Okay. Yeah, but Edwards is clearly the best player of that group. He is. He um, can be a little bit of a of a. How can you put it? He, he's a little. What's the word when? I don't know what you're trying to say. You know, it starts with a V, and it's who who cares, Ben? Word, words are meaningless. I think I I like the consistency of those other three guys, and I like the defensive like coherence between them okay i think that's fair they have much more depth there is a defensive cohesion uh i don't know how to do this it's impossible i think i would say the celtics are 10 okay i i would have the uh i would have the knicks nine i'm gonna go with the knicks over the celtics okay yeah. You're not going to like this one. I think you have to do it, though. I think you have to do it. I'm going to go with the Suns next. Ooh, why, do you, why do you think I'm not going to like it? Do you think they're too high or too low in my book? 
I thought they were going to be too high for you. I think with Devin Booker there, Chris Paul's still, you know, the depth is a, is a thing to me, but I think Booker and Paul, uh, that's a good foundational backcourt, even with, even with Paul's age. I, I agree with you. I think I would okay. take the Suns. No. Then I'm going to go Kings. Then I get – now it gets impossible. I Who came up with this idea? I have no <laughs> idea. I have no idea. I'm going to change my order. See, what people listening don't realize is now that we've talked it through, that's the analysis. That's the perspective. There's obviously some variability in how this shakes out. So if you ask me to rank, do the same ranking at the end of our conversation, right after we finish recording the podcast, I'd probably have a different order. Um but in general, you know, Minnesota, New York, Phoenix, Sacramento, they're somewhere in this group. Then I, then I think I like Philly and uh, Cody, I think I like the Cleveland backcourt better than Philly. Okay. Yeah. I like the Cleveland backcourt better than Philly. Um, and that leaves Dallas, Memphis, and Golden State, uh, I will say, oh boy, okay. We might be missing a team. I think you've said nine. Who am I missing? How many, what, what? Who am I missing? So I think you have Celtics 10. Oh, you're right. Yeah. You're right. I am missing a team. Um, Part of me think, I don't know, man. It's either, either Lillard or SGA are being snubbed, snubbed here, Ben. Yeah, I guess I could go Portland 10. Over the Thunder backcourt. Uh yeah. I'll go I'll go I'll go Portland ten. Okay. I'll go Portland ten, Boston nine, Knicks eight, Sun seven, King six. Uh I'm gonna get crazy, Cody. Okay. I'm gonna get absolutely nuts. Okay? Okay. This is a vibe situation. This is an off court. This is an off-court accounting situation. Vibrating, I'm vibrating. <laughs> Cody's vibrating. I'm gonna go Mavs five. <laughs> he did it. <laughs> we are here, everybody. We yeah. have landed. <laughs> yeah. Cavs four, and uh, who's left? I have no idea who's left. I'm going Memphis number one. Okay. <laughs> the Warriors are. They're in there. They're two. I don't even know who's left. I can't think. Philadelphia. Philadelphia's in there. Yeah. Philadelphia and the Warriors are in there. And then I'm, you convinced me. Memphis is number one. If, if you want to support this podcast, check out patreon.com slash thinking basketball. Uh, we've, got, we've got extra stuff there. And uh, live, live Q&A. We did a fun live Q&A. Um, no one listens to the outro. It doesn't even matter what I say at this point. If if you made it, if you made it this far, um, thanks thanks as always for listening. And what do I say at the end of these podcasts? Oh oh, of course. I hope you're having a great day. Bubble Murray, KCP, Bruce Brown. That's my real pick.